Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. Also, uh, Reach Church DeSoto and the venue service right down the hall. Grateful for all of you this morning. We come to 1 Samuel 25 and we find David again in the school of faith. And God is instructing him, God is teaching him more and more about what it means to follow him. He's developing him into the king uh, that he will become. And it's interesting because in chapter 25, he's going to teach him a lesson that we thought he learned in chapter 24, but apparently hasn't learned well enough. Uh, In chapter 24, God uh, has instructed him with Saul. He has an opportunity to take his life, this man who is seeking his own life. And what does he say? We're going to leave it with God. We're going to trust God. We're just going to be faithful. We'll not take matters into our own hands. We'll not get rid of a guy who stands in our way. We're going to trust God to take care of that for us. And uh, he does really well. I give him an A minus, and uh, he does pretty good. And then we get to chapter 25, and he's going to find a man who insults him. And rather than saying, uh, let's leave it to God, he's going to say, let's kill him. And uh, you give him a big F right here, all right? He's going to fail. Um, but isn't that the way God does with us? I mean, we, we take tests, and we're walking with Jesus, and we think we've got an area of our life figured out. And then the next thing you know, we find ourselves failing in an area that we thought we had learned better. And uh, this is the part of God shaping us into who he desires us to be. And in the midst of this, we're going to see a powerful picture from a woman named Abigail, an unlikely hero who's going to stand in the gap. And and she's going to be a powerful demonstration of the gospel. And she's going to bring salvation to uh, her husband, at least temporarily. And and she is going to save David from committing a great sin in his life that would have blemished his, his reign. So with those things in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we'd have no way of knowing who you are apart from your word, apart from you speaking to us. So we're so grateful that you have declared yourself to us so we can know more about you. And I pray that you would teach us and instruct us today by means of your word, about your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your restraint, your protection, your discipline. God, speak to us through your word. Draw us close to yourself. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, look with me in verse one. It says, then Samuel died and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. It's interesting, uh, I don't know about you, but you uh, are left here in these two verses in the death of an incredibly significant figure and you're left wanting to know more. Um, I want to know more about the reactions of certain people. How do they react to this? Um, David, it appears, wasn't there. He's, um, He's a fugitive. How did Saul respond? What was, the, what was the greater and grander response of the people? We get just a few words here, just one verse. Um, and you think, what in the world is going on here? We think about the people who, even in our own uh, world today, uh, great faith leaders um, like Charles Stanley, Tim Keller, made a mark on a lot of people, a lot of fanfare, a lot of things go on. Well, here's Samuel. <laughs> it's hard to understate the significance of Samuel. Gets two books of the Bible named After him, he initiates a work of God and the movement of God's people, Israel, that will bring about and culminate in the coming of the Lord's Messiah. You can't understate the significance of this guy, and yet we get one verse on his death. Uh, That he died, Israel assembled, they mourned, they buried him in his hometown. What is God teaching us? What is God doing here? Because all of God's word is intentional. Here's what I think God wants us to know, that when a man dies, God's story continues. God buries the worker But the work goes on. 
The best of men are men at best. They exist, and that is the end of their story, but it's not the end of God's story. It's not the end of the real story because the real story is God's story and his work in Jesus Christ. And so all of us, all of our lives should, if lived correctly, fade into the greater light of Jesus Christ. Samuel, at the end of the day, is just a servant who was used by God to further the greater story, which is the story of God and his work of redemption in Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder that we look to men and women in our life who are heroes of the faith and we seek to imitate. But listen to me, we do not base our lives and ministries on personalities or programs. We base them in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his word. That is what endures. That's what continues on. So Samuel, as great as he was, was a man. He died, and the work continues. And then we're, uh, we, we um, encounter this uh, test that, that God is going to bring about in David's life. Look in verse 2. It says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was uh, shearing his sheep in Carmel, and then it uh, stops here and says, now the man's name was uh, Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings and he was a Calebite. So the word of God gives us some uh, greater de- description of these two individuals. They're an odd couple. You've got this one guy named Nabal and we're gonna find out later his name Nabal means fool. Uh, be careful how you name your children, all right? Uh, I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand why they named their kid Fool. But I would imagine that probably wasn't his original name. I picture him as a Cletus, all right? That's the name I've given him, the original name, Cletus. And, and later on, as they're just watching this guy live, they go, there he is, the Fool. And that just becomes his nickname, and it sticks. Um, but what's interesting about this guy, he's a pretty successful businessman. Even though he's a fool, he's a pretty shrewd business guy, and he's made himself incredibly wealthy, and that's his significance. His significance is found in the fact that he's got all these sheep and all these goats. He's incredibly wealthy. And somehow, he's managed to marry this woman named Abigail, who's beautiful and incredibly intelligent. The exact opposite of the guy she married. And the question is, how in the world did the two get matched up? Well, I'm Imagine it wasn't her choice. Uh, These are arranged marriages, and there was probably a daddy who said, you know what, I want my daughter to have a lot of stuff, and I want her to marry somebody who's wealthy, and so she'll be secure, and she'll have comfort and ease in her life, and that same dad probably overlooked the main character that you want in uh, a husband for your daughter, and that's their faith in God. And so he's overlooked the important, important matters of character and faith in order to provide a secure living for his daughter, and in turn, he's put her in a very bad situation. And so here she is, she's married to this guy who's wealthy, but he's evil, he's brash, he's harsh, and he's a fool. And the scripture says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And the picture here that we have is that Nabal is not a God-fearing man. When you don't recognize God in your life, you have no sense of accountability. When you have no sense of accountability, you'll act in whatever way you want because you don't feel like there's any repercussions for your actions. That's Nabal. And yet he has a faithful wife. She is beautiful and she is intelligent and she will trust God. In fact, she is going to act in a way that David will not in this story. Even in their description, uh, Abigail is described much in the same way that David was described when we met him. So here's this woman, this bad situation, but she'll be faithful. 
So David hears that they're in a time of shearing. It says in uh, verse four that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David sent, said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal and greet him in my name and thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your uh, son, David. So these men, David tells them, I want you to go. I want you to go at a time of of the shearing. That was an incredibly celebratory time. It was a time in which you would celebrate all that God had done in your life in providing these sheep and the wool. And that was also a time when you would exchange money and you would demonstrate hospitality and generosity to the people who would help you get to where you're at on that day. So it was not uncustomary for somebody like David who had helped this man and protected this man to, to ask him to show generosity out of the work that he had provided for him. The greatest virtue of the Middle Eastern culture was hospitality and generosity towards those who had been a blessing to you. So this was not uncustomary for David to make this request. So he sends these men. He says, I want you to be very respectful of Nabal. You, you be very respectful towards him and as you're respectful towards him, you give him a, a gentle reminder of all the things that we have done for him, all the ways in which we have blessed him and cared for his men and his sheep. And then at the end of that, I want you to make a very humble, meager request. We're not asking for a lot, but at the end of the day, after all the party's done, if they got any leftovers, essentially David requests, would you just give me some of what you have? The expectation here on the part of David is we've done right by you. Now it is your turn to show generosity and hospitality us. Well, in verse 9, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. By the way, David, when he comes, doesn't say, he doesn't assert his authority and say, I'm the king, which he could have. I'm the Lord's anointed. You give me what is mine. He makes a humble request. Respect to you, Nabal. God's been good to you. As you're celebrating, we've taken care of you. If you've got anything left over, give to us. How will Nabal respond to that? How will Nabal respond to the kindness and generosity that David has shown to him? Well, look at verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So Nabal says, I don't even know who this David is. Now that's a flat out lie. Everybody knew who David was. They knew what David had done. But he's, he's just, it's a backhanded insult towards David. I don't even know this guy. Eh, who cares if he killed a giant? I don't know him, son of Jesse, whatever. Uh, so he gives a backhanded insult, but then he goes further than that because he makes accusation against David. He says, I hear there's a lot of guys who are breaking away from their master these days. In other words, he has an accusation of unfaithfulness towards David. Saying, listen, it, it sounds to me like the guy's a bum, uh, if he had stayed with his master and been faithful in the job that God had given to him, he probably wouldn't be in a situation where he had to beg me for some food. He's been unfaithful. Um, so backhanded insult, accusation. And then the final part of this is the, demonstrates his selfishness. Why should I give him some of my stuff? This is my stuff. This is my bread, my water. There's no acknowledgement of God here. There's no de demonstration of the generosity of what God has done for him. He says, this is my stuff. 
Nabal only cares about one person, himself. It's all about Nabal. That is a prideful, arrogant person. What have we learned throughout 1 Samuel? God opposes the proud. How's it gonna end for Nabal? You had to come back next week. All right, we're not gonna get there this morning. But it's not gonna work out well for him. So he sets him up. This is my stuff. I'm prideful, I'm arrogant. And I'm not giving anything today. I don't even know who he is. He's breaking away from his master. He's unfaithful. And then in verse 12, so David's young men retraced their way, went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. Now, don't read ahead. If, if you just got to this point, all right, you're reading, you have to do this sometimes. Read the Bible as if you're reading it for the very first time. If you don't know all that we know, all you've read is chapter 24 leading up to this. You remember, this is the same guy who, when he had an opportunity to kill King Saul, who's after him, wants to kill his life, says, no, guys, we're not going to do that. We're going to trust in the Lord. We're just going to be we're going to trust the Lord. We'll be patient. God will work it out in his time, his way. So David, the guy's come back, says he, he, he says he don't even know who you are, David. Uh, doesn't know who your daddy is. Says you've been unfaithful. Um, says it's his stuff. He ain't giving you nothing. Now, but having read what we read, you know, at least in our minds, we'd be a little hopeful. David would say, well, doggone it, that's a bad deal. But uh, we're going to trust God. Uh, God's been good. He's always taking care of us. We're just going to trust God in this, just like we trusted God with Saul. We're going to leave it to the Lord. How does David do? David said to his men in verse 13, each of you gird on his sword. Each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. You hear that same word over and over again? Sword, sword, sword. Boys, get your guns. We're going to put a stop to this. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. To say that David is livid is an understatement. He has been personally insulted. Nabal has insulted him and he has insulted his character. Listen to me, you want to make a man mad. You insult his character. Now, David is angry. He is mad. Anger, though, listen to me, anger is not the issue. The Bible tells us, be angry and do not sin. The issue is, will he act out of his anger? The normal response, the natural response of us when we are unjustly treated is to get angry. But sin is a process, and if we nip it in the bud right there and we don't do what is in our heart to do, We'll save ourselves a lot of trouble. The problem is when we act in that anger and do things that we know are wrong. Any of you got caught up in anger and done things you wish you would have never done? Said things you wish you would have never had said? Boy, anger can blind us, can it? I mean, David's gonna kill. He's got it. He is set in his heart to kill a whole family of men to leave a bunch of widows and orphans and their tribes of Israel. Does David care about that at that moment? Nah, he care less. He's mad and he's gonna get his pound of flesh. So David says, we're gonna go get him. He set his heart to sin in a way that would be incredibly detrimental. And the question is, is there anybody out there that will stand in the gap? Because when Samuel dies, the real question is, will there be a voice of God in David's life? Will there be somebody who'll stand in the gap and protect him and guide him in paths of righteousness? Well, enter Abigail. Look at verse 14. Then one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. 
Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So the servant comes and says, Abigail, I gotta tell you something. I can't go talk to your husband because nobody, he won't listen to anybody. He's a worthless man. But I know I can hear, I can talk to you and you need to know something. David and his men showed up and they recounted how they were a blessing to us and I can tell you I was there. They were a blessing. They were like a wall to us. They were an incredible protection to us. They were a blessing. They protected us from the Philistines and all the people that were out there. Man, they were so good to us and so don't listen to anything your husband says. These guys were good to us and And your husband treated them horribly. He insulted David and sent him away. And and you need to know evil, wrath is gonna come down on your family, on your your husband. You gotta do something. These men are plotting evil against your husband. Now, if you're Abigail and you hear this, and uh, no telling what all Abigail's had to put up with for a long time. If you're Abigail, what are you saying? Well, I'm probably saying, yeah, let's see how this deal plays out. Um, I've been waiting on him to die a long time. Maybe this is an answer to prayer. This is a providence of God right here. I'm not even going to have to touch him. But will that be the response of Abigail? No, listen to me. This is a beautiful picture. Abigail is going to respond in the way that David should have. Abigail says, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna be faithful, even when it isn't personally advantageous to me. And I'm gonna trust God. I'm gonna trust God that he'll deal with this in his time and his way. So what does she do? Look at verse 18. Then Abigail hurried, took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, 100 cluster of razors, raisins and 200 cakes of figs and load them on donkey. So she gets this huge feast. She gathers it on her donkey and she's hurrying. She knows time is of the essence. I've got to move right now to protect my husband. In verse 19, she said to her young men, go on before me. Don't wait for me. You guys go on. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband of all. Why? Because he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow her to do this anyway. Um, This is the exact opposite of Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, you remember, she goes along with her husband in sin and she is held accountable. This is a picture of true faithfulness because ultimate submission is only due to God. And Abigail knows my husband might oppose this, but I'm not going with him in sin. I'm gonna do the right thing here. But I can't tell him. It's a sad deal when a wife has to work around her husband in order to be obedient to God. That's the position Abigail's in. In verse 20, it came about as she was riding her donkey and coming down the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her. So she met them. Imagine this, you got this little girl, little woman on a donkey with all this stuff and maybe a couple guys with her and this huge army, thundering horses coming down. They're coming down with vengeance in their heart. They're mad, their swords are girded, the thundering of those horses coming down. There she is. And listen to what's on David's mind. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. What David has in his mind, I'm gonna kill him and I'm gonna kill every one of them. He messed with the wrong guy. In fact, if you got a footnote, mine's got a footnote on one male. 
Uh, it doesn't want to translate it because the, the actual translation is too vulgar. David gets salty in his language. He's livid. He's mad. He's saying things that he wouldn't normally say because he's ticked off. Well, she comes. Look at, look at what it says in verse 23. Then, and when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. Who does that remind you of? In the previous chapter, we saw David. When, when he goes out to Saul, what does he do? Saul has all these men who could kill him. He is gathered there to kill David, and David does what? He goes out there and bows himself down to the ground in humility, knowing that God will trust, God will protect the humble. And so here is Abigail. She, she falls on her face to the ground, bows herself to the ground. In verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. She takes the blame. Listen, as far as we know, in everything we can tell in this story, Abigail hasn't done anything wrong. It's amazing. It's a powerful picture. She humbles herself and says, I'll take the hit. I'll take the blame. Let it be on me. Does this remind us of anybody who had done no wrong, who had committed no sin, who yet out of a love for people who were the objects of wrath, humbled himself and took the weight and bear, bore the guilt of their sins on his shoulders so that you can, I, I could have reconciliation with the Father. What a powerful picture in Abigail. Because here's the deal, whenever you wanna know reconciliation between two individuals, somebody has to humble themselves. In, in our relationship with God, we had offended a holy God. We were the ones who had done wrong. We were the ones who had committed sin. And yet, who was it that humbled himself and took the hit so that we could have salvation? It was Jesus Christ. A powerful picture for all of us. You want to know reconciliation in any relationship in your life? Somebody's got to take the hit. Somebody's got to humble themselves. Right here, it's Abigail, even though she had done nothing wrong. She humbles herself before David. Verse 25, please don't let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. Boy, she throws him off quick, doesn't she? Husbands, don't ever let this be said about you. This worthless man, Nabal, for his, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She says, if I had been there, David, it wouldn't have worked out this way. May the blame be on me. Verse 26, now therefore, my, soul, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself on your own hand, uh, own hand uh, by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. She's saying the Lord is restraining you here, David. The Lord is protecting you from doing something that would be a blight upon your, your kingship and upon your reign. God is protecting you here. Verse 27, now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. I have brought this incredible gift made assuage the wrath of the Lord's anointed who has been offended. Verse 28, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Again, we don't know that she's done anything wrong. But she's saying, forgive me. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in all your days. This is a powerful statement. This is what amazes me here. Notice what she says, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. As far as I know, as best I've studied, this is the first time there's been a pronouncement 
that David will be the one through whom the Messiah will come. That David will have an enduring house and he'll have an enduring throne so that the Messiah will be one who will sit on the throne of David forever. Isn't this amazing? That first proclamation will become through a humble woman who sets herself up as a mediator for her own husband and she'll declare to David, this is what she's saying to David, David, act like the king that you're gonna be. Act like the king who's gonna come from you. In some ways, she doesn't say it explicitly, but you know what she's really saying? Act like Jesus. Jesus, you remember, who while being reviled, didn't revile in return, and while suffering, uttered no threats. She said, you don't wanna be known by this. It's not befitting your kingship, and it's not befitting the eternal king who will come through your line. This is, uh, is the more I study this, the more I'm amazed by the boldness of this woman. I mean, this is the, do you know this is one of the longest discourses you'll get of any individual in all the Old Testament. Isn't it fitting? It comes from a woman, I will say that. But it does long discourse. I just offended some folks. Please forgive me. Please, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have said that. We'll strike that from the tape. We, we'll put the 930 online. Um, but she does. I'll tell you, I shouldn't joke, because listen, this is a powerful I mean, she not only has the nerve to put herself in harm's way to protect her sinful husband, but she has the Holy Spirit-inspired gumption to lecture the Lord's anointed King David. And how does she lecture him? Not on the basis of her word, but the word of God. She confronts him with the truth of God's word and she points him to the example of Jesus Christ. You want a textbook definition of how you confront somebody who's headed towards a path of sin, look no further than Abigail. Anybody that tells you that the word of God does not exalt women hadn't read the Bible lately. The first to pronounce that David will be an enduring king, he'll have an enduring reign through the Messiah who will come from him, and a woman who will come to David and prevent him from acting in sin that would have blemished his reign. What a powerful example this woman is. And, and, and should anyone in verse 29 rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then, li then uh, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. Isn't that a powerful phrase? Your life will be bound in the bundle of the living of the Lord your God. You're gonna be king. You're gonna reign. God will protect you. Verse 30, and when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief for a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. She's saying, I'm doing this so that later on when you, when you become king, when God does for you all that he's going to do for you and you lay your head on the pillow at night, you'll not have a guilty conscience. You will not have to think about a lot of widows and orphans that are widows and orphans because you couldn't control your anger. David, I'm doing this to prevent you from doing something stupid that you'll pay for for the rest of your life. And when you get to that place and you remember the kindness, remember 
your maidservant. Would you just remember me? We keep hearing this a lot in Samuel. It always reminds me of the thief on the cross. Listen, when you become king, that's what the thief says, will you just remember me? And here is this woman, Abigail, who's saying, I, at the end of the day, I'm just a servant. But when you become king, would you remember the kindness that I demonstrated to you? Now, will David remember her kindness? Oh, he'll remember. He's going to marry the woman. He's going to take care of her. And we're going to study the rest of this next week. But you know what I love about this? David's eyes are going to be opened because of the voice of God and the truth of God through this woman. And he will change his ways. See, that's the key mark of a true believer is not just, the, the, the mark of a true believer is not that we, we don't sin anymore, but that when we're confronted with sin on the basis of God's word, we change. And that's gonna be David. Say what you want about David. He makes a lot of mistakes. He's gonna make a lot more. But when confronted with the word of God, he humbled himself, he repented and changed the direction of his life. Now, there's a lot we could say about this passage. Listen to me, there's, there's, there's a powerful picture here of, of the danger of anger that wells up in our hearts and results in us doing stupid things. Boy, beware of anger and cut it off at its root and don't act on it and do things that you'll later regret. We also see a powerful picture here of how we confront one another in sin. When you see a brother and sister in Christ that's heading in a direction that's detrimental to their life, praise God for some Abigails in our lives. Do we not all have those people in our lives that occasionally have come alongside of us and said, don't do that. And they pointed us to the word of God and they pointed us to the example of Christ. They protected us from a lot of hurt that we could have, we could have uh, experienced in our life in the direction that we were headed. And I don't know about you, but I read this and I praise God for his restraining grace. Any of us say we can look back on our life and see when we were headed down a path of sin and God intervened and unbeknownst to us in different ways restrained us from continuing down a path that would have been very detrimental to us? Boy, we read this passage and we say praise God for his restraining grace in our lives. But do you know what I think the, powerful, the most powerful picture we're intended to see in this? All of God's word is a, is a book about Jesus. It's all pointing us towards Christ. And I have to be careful because in every passage, I'm always looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus at? And, and, and if I'm not careful, I'll find him in places maybe he wasn't intended to be pictured. But listen to me. I don't think there's any way that we can walk away from this story and not see in Abigail a picture of our Savior Jesus. I already told you about it earlier. But any of us here know what it means to be a sinner and an object of God's wrath that we, we had sinned against a holy God, we had offended a holy God. Prior to faith in Christ, we didn't care about Jesus, we didn't care about God, we despised him. We knew his blessings, just as, as Nabal knew the blessings of David. We knew the blessings of God, but we did not acknowledge him, according to Romans chapter one, and we didn't give him thanks. And there we were in a position of wrath. Nabal is in a position of wrath, he don't even know it. He doesn't know the wrath of David is coming for him and the wrath of God was coming for us. But praise God that we had a mediator, the man Jesus Christ, who saw us in our sinful condition and came and condescended to the point of death and he became a mediator, an intercessor between us and God and died on a cross for our sins and he had done nothing wrong but he, he bore the full weight of God's wrath for our sin so that you and I could now know the salvation of God. 
on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Boy, uh, I went to study this passage. I'm going to tell you, I did not expect to see that in this passage, Abigail would be the hero who points us to the ultimate hero, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for your word that in every aspect of it, this is a book about Jesus, and it's hard to turn a page without seeing Christ. And certainly this morning as we've studied this passage, we see a woman who is faithful. She's walking in faithfulness. She sees her husband as an object of of the Lord's anointed's wrath and she stands in the gap even though she had done nothing wrong. She takes the guilt upon herself in order to assuage the wrath of an offended king. And Lord, we, we praise you that we stood in a place of wrath and condemnation in our sin and Christ who had done nothing wrong because he's sinless and he is God condescended. He put on flesh and he he bore the weight of the guilt of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, today would be the day of salvation for them. They would trust in Christ. And God, for those of us that do know you, I pray, Lord, I pray with all my heart. Lord, that we would um, be restrained in our anger. I pray that you would put godly men and women around us who would confront us in our sin and protect us on the basis of the truth of God's word and the picture of Christ. I pray that when confronted with the word, we would change the direction of our life. And God, we thank you for your restraining grace, how even in those moments when we intended to do sin, when you stood in the gap and you directed us and you protected us by whatever means necessary so that we wouldn't bring the sin that was in our heart to fulfillment. God, thank you for your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.